certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Hello and welcome back to Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, also joining us, the West's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark. Our forensic expert, Brendan Chapman, returns and also a special guest with us today, forensic anthropologist and criminologist, Dr Xanthi Mallet. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Mm. Hello. <laughs> now, Brendan, we haven't spoken to you since the verdict, but I understand you did go to court. Was it the outcome you expected? Um, I wasn't surprised by the outcome, let's say that. Um, and But coincidentally, I was actually across the road at the central law courts um, during the whole uh, fiasco. So it was actually quite coincidental that I bumped into Tim out the front. I wasn't there for the trial. I, I, I knew... Um, there would be a, a difficulty in in getting a getting a spot and seeing um, what happened, and I believe they had a few court rooms open for the public. Yeah. So I didn't really fancy trying to compete with that. <laughs> no, it, it was a really bizarre and monumental day. Um, Justice Hall was satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the DNA under Kira's nails got there because she fought for her life. Of course, during the trial, the defence argued that it happened through contamination. While you were listening to the evidence through, through the trial, was it clear to you already that the contamination theory didn't stack up? Um, it was always a, a plausible explanation, um, but I guess as the, as the trial went on, hearing um, kind of these, these plausible explanations become more and more and more as the trial went on, all of a sudden I, I had a, probably a tipping point where it got to the stage where there were now really probably too many coincidences started, starting to come up that was really starting to make, um, in my opinion, the, the, the defence argument start to fall apart, I suppose. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but I sort of, um, I kept wanting, if there, if there really had happened by contamination, then I wanted to know how. And there was no explanation for that. Mm, there, there often isn't a how. Um, it's great when we can identify the reason for a contamination event, um, but the nature of what we do and, and, and the fact that we really are copying up such minute amounts of DNA, um, when you do get um, a contamination event, you can, you can kind of work through all of the processes and, and kind of look at where it might have happened and, and rule things out, but you still can – it's not un, unusual to end up with a situation that you just can't account for. And it was interesting just reading the judgment. The contamination occurrences that were raised by Mr Jovic, they were easily explainable. All mm. but one of them were was a direct staff contact. And then that last one where a third party was involved, i.e. a completely innocent victim, um, there was – Again, a, a direct pathway between the the consumables that were used, i.e., the tube, um, for the one and the other. Even though there were some days in between, and then you had this um, AJM forty forty two, the fingernails, and there just wasn't a pathway. Even a, a even the most you know rarest of occurrences would have meant a thirteen month gap and cleaning yeah. and all the rest of it. And so, Justice Hall was very clear on that that. 
um, the, uh, the thousands and thousands of exhibits and tens of thousands of tests were done, he would expect a certain error rate, which he got. He said the Pathwest staff, when they were all questioned about that, were very open about it and very apologetic, and they actually reacted the way they should have done, i.e. investigated it, tabulated it, and, and made sure, tried to make sure it didn't happen again. And then when it came to the argument about the fingernails and Mr. Edwards' other samples, there just wasn't any other explanation other than they got there when Kira was fighting for her life. That's right. And as Damien said the other day, the evidence is the evidence. And as you said, Brendan, the DNA doesn't lie. And yeah, that's the result we got. Um, Xanthi, hello. I'm just wondering, could you maybe explain for our listeners your background and your areas of expertise? Sure. It's a, a little bit eclectic, I think. I discovered the other day doing another <laughs> podcast, actually. Um, yeah, so my background is in forensic anthropology. That's where I trained. That's what I did my PhD in, looking at faces, um, specifically in that case, CCTV. So measured lots and lots of faces, like 3,000 faces, put landmarks on those. Um, took a long time. And landmarked them twice, actually, looking for patterns in faces so that we can improve methods of CCTV identification, normally from crowds, that kind of thing. Um, but I trained to identify human remains um, and so did that for the first five years of my career before also moving into criminology and looking at the behavioural side of things. Um, so it's kind of moving between the hard sciences of forensic anthropology and into the behavioural sciences um, as well to understand criminal behaviour. Well, I'm very interested in the CCTV side of things because, of course, during this trial we saw lots of CCTV and, of course, the um, the pictures that we most remember are of Jane smiling to greet someone that we never found out who that person was. How difficult is it to to pinpoint and find the people in these crowds? Yeah, so we've got a lot better. I mean, I did my PhD ooh, many moons ago now, I won't say how long, um, but quite a long time ago now. So we're, we're much better than we were then. There are still problems recognising faces in crowds. Um, you get false positives, you get false negatives. Um, so certainly it can be useful, um, but I would caveat that around the fact that, you know, it, it's not an exact science as yet. When was the first time you had heard about the Claremont case? Oh, so I've been in Australia since 2012, but it wasn't really, I guess, um, until the, the trial last year. You know, I'm obviously on the East Coast. Um, I probably heard little snippets about it. You know, we don't have many serial offenders in the country. Um, so it would have come across my radar. But obviously, when the trial was taking place, um, it became kind of front and centre because, you know, for, for such a you know case, it's going back quite a long time to reach a conclusion at this stage um, was, was quite something. So I was certainly watching it when it went to trial last year. Yeah. And what are the theories, I guess, as to why a person um, would commit these monstrous crimes? I mean, we've had people emailing us and, and saying things like, you know, is someone born bad or does something bad happen to them to turn them into a monster? Are there theories around this? There are, and, and all the psychopaths that I'd looked at, and I would count Edwards amongst those, simply because of his behaviour patterns. So he clearly lacks empathy or sympathy for his victims. He's very premeditated in his crimes. Um, he's obviously very secretive because he kept this to himself for a long time. So all of the characteristics that I can see in him and from descriptions of you know pe things people have said that he's done, um, he's obviously got those kind of sexual deviancies associated with that and the violent tendencies. So 
there are theories as to how these individuals um, come about and we believe that psychopaths are actually born rather than made. They've done a lot of studies looking at psychopaths' brains and when they're triggered and they don't respond in the same way to other people's brains, normal people's brains, to emotional events. So images that you and I would find distressing, a psychopath's brain will not react in the same way. So we do believe that they're actually born with their brains simply wired differently and they just don't feel those same emotions um, that other people do. So they're not restricted in their behaviours in the same way that other people are. The flip side of that is sociopaths, um, and we the current thinking is that they are born with certain tendencies, but if they have a stable upbringing, loving environment, you can actually reduce some of those attributes and they can go on to have, you know, kind of normal relationships. So they're kind of made, they're, nature, they're nurture, and psychopaths are just born that way. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting um, you talking about a psychopath and these characteristics because one of the standout moments of this trial was the six-hour police interview of when Edwards was arrested. And, of course, you know, Tim and Alison told us about that video and how he was almost devoid of emotion. Mm-hmm. And and for us, we found that bizarre. And Alison Fang couldn't, just couldn't grapple with this person who had zero emotion to these crimes that were being put to him. Yeah, well, that doesn't really surprise me from that kind of psychopathic tendencies. You know, you may see a response if you can find their trigger, and that varies. You know, sometimes that's talking about their family, sometimes that's talking about their victims, um, but they like to stay very much in control. They're normally narcissists, and they believe that they are dominating the conversation, they can outmaneuver everybody, they can outthink all of the police, and they normally play it pretty cool and, and collected during these interviews and, and feign, you know, surprise and horror of being, you know, accused of these things. And it's kind of that, how dare you accuse me type. That exactly um, illustrates exactly what Edwards did um, at the start. Oh, well, I haven't seen it, oh, so that's, well, that's, that's good. Yeah, no, it's, videos, it's, so. it's, uh, it's uncanny, actually, Cynthia. It's spot on because at the, right at the start, Mr. Edwards is disbelieving of anything he was being told. Um, again, when he that, so that's in the house. Then when he's taken back to the to the police building again, it was disbelief and um, feigning no knowledge whatsoever. But when the police were asking him questions about himself and his family in particular, he he was very open to answer those questions he opened them ve- uh, he answered them very uh, willingly and very um uh, wordily in fact he he he, he would talked for a long time about his family history himself his school um his past relationships his girlfriends um his work but as soon as the topic came back to crimes crimes he later admitted and also crimes obviously he was com- convicted of last week um, the the shutters came down again. The 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 non emotive, almost blank expression and certainly monotone answers um, descended. And the longer you watch that interview, the more apparent it was that it might not have been a split personality, but there were certainly two sides to him, which obviously we all now know is the one side was hiding in plain sight, and the other side was this very dark. And um, obviously now we can say murderous um, intent um, motivated by a sexual fetish that he'd had for many, many years. 
Yeah, the way I describe it to my students is they kind of wear a mask. They're very good at mimicking behaviours and they're kind of chameleons. They fit into their environments pretty well normally. But if you can find that trigger, you can actually get the mask to drop. And that can really frustrate them because they don't want to show that side of them unless they choose to. And that's normally when they're offending and they only choose to show that to their victims when they're in control of that. So if you can actually find that trigger and get them to drop that mask, even for like a heartbeat, you get to see the true uh, person underneath. And that's it can be quite frightening to see that, but then it's kind of like a gotcha. Yeah. There he is. And the police involved in that interview, they, they endeavoured, they tried every trick in the book. <laughs> they were nice to well, him. They actually did show him pictures of of Kira and Jane and Sarah, slid them across the desk, appealed to whatever better nature he might have. Um, he doesn't have one. No, <laughs> using the trigger of you know your daughter thinks you says your you know your trustworthiness is one of your best qualities. You know you don't want to let her down. They tried to get in to that closed box in in so many ways, mm-hmm. and we've talked on previous podcasts how impressive it was really um but no his his mask never slipped and 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 then in the 95 days of the trial um it it hardly slipped at all we hardly saw any emotion apart from some flickers when he was watching um home videos of him and his um stepdaughter when he was very young which uh, again echoed to me the fact that um you know that was about him that was he was watching himself um on on the uh, on the on the CCTV on the TV in the court but um they can come across as these very loving you know family men they're living in the suburbs the amount of times i've heard he's some normal white guy living you know middle-aged white guy living in the suburbs i'm like well invariably they are you know they're holding down normal jobs they've got families you know nothing about this and yet there's this side of them that they keep secret and they are so good at it you know it's and decades and decades they can keep this to themselves so um they are very practised at hiding that side of themselves. And even at the very end, we saw through to the very end that even when the verdict was handed down, still there was barely any emotion whatsoever, a slight shake of the head, right, Tim? Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I got the impression that wasn't a shake of the head of regret for what he'd done. That was a shake of the head as of as disbelief that he'd uh, that he that he'd been convicted and caught after all these years. Um, I mean, you know, I might have been reading too much into that, but having watched him so closely over the last seven or eight months and and read um, about w- what he's what he has done um, in those two lives, um, that it, it didn't surprise me at all that um, he was so non-communicative on in on and such a huge moment. I think he probably read it right. It probably was more surprised that he'd been convicted because from his perspective, he's cleverer than anybody else. Yes. And he probably, you know, fully expected to be found not guilty. Um, and so, you know, that moment of realising that he hadn't got away with it was probably surprised. I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd shown anger as well at, you know, his, you know, this having happened to him, but I wouldn't expect any remorse because he simply doesn't have the capacity to feel any. And Xanthi, in your experience, does a psychopath uh, graduate in their crimes? Because people have asked us, you know, uh, obviously there was a, a sexual assault and then there was a brutal rape and then there's a murder. Is this a classic situation? Yeah, absolutely. Escalation. I I was trying to think the other day, actually, of any cases where I haven't seen escalation because I was asked the same question. um, And it was like, do people kind of graduate through these crimes? And I was like, 
and then can you think of any examples and I was like well I can't really think of an example where they haven't done that mm. you know they practice their skills they don't you know they want to get more excitement next time they they build things in they change the mo to make it um more successful but then they build in these ritualistic behaviors as well which we saw with edwards you know the positioning of the bodies etc so some of his behaviors were really about uh, logistics and some were about his him playing out his rituals and his fantasies that he's thought about for a very long time and he's kind of progressed through these stages as his fantasies have progressed and he needs more and more to actually achieve his sexual outcome i guess the question is how does a psychopath stop? Oh, that's a great one because generally speaking, they don't tend to stop. We, you know, the kind of rhetoric is they either die, they get arrested, or they move to another area. But occasionally, they do have gaps in their offending history. They can stop, um, and usually it's when situationally something has changed for them. Um, so they may have stability in their personal life because some of these individuals actually act out when something has gone wrong for them. So they're acting out stresses in their personal life on their victims. We saw that with Ivan Malat. Or alternatively, some of the offenders get older. And so as testosterone levels drop, because invariably, you know, we're looking at men in the vast majority of cases, testosterone drops, the thrill-seeking behaviours drop off, uh, and the need to commit these sexual acts kind of diminishes with those testosterone levels. But it's it's not common for them to just um, stop, and there's always a reason for it when they do. Well, we heard a lot about that, didn't we, Tim? Because throughout the trial, we heard about these emotional upsets um, that coincided with the various crimes that Edwards was committing. Yeah, that was the theory that the prosecution worked on for a long time, and they tried to marry them up date-wise um, in, in terms of the relationship. And we we do know for a fact that the, the Hollywood hospital attack, which we've heard so much about in the last couple of days with Wendy, the, the, Wendy Davis, the victim of that, coming out and speaking publicly, that was triggered by a row with his girlfriend the night before who was pressuring him uh, to marry her. And he said that, uh, he said as much to the psychologist when um, he got convicted of, of, of that um, offence. And then the, the extrapolation of that was the breakup of his marriage, finding out um, his girlfriend had cheated on him and was sleeping with another man, the, finding out she was then pregnant, the sale of the marital home. That was the, that was, that was the theory that the prosecution went on. They eventually abandoned that at the end of the trial. Personally, I don't now I don't think that was um, anything more than they didn't really need to pursue it because I feel that they felt that they'd done enough in court through the physical and forensic evidence and all the other stuff that they'd laid out that, that, that although a motive um, and a theory of motive you know maybe would have added to something it didn't really detract from the case but it's really interesting to hear Xanthia again say that that triggering emotional triggering is not unusual in these cases but perhaps the fact that Edwards did stop um, after Kira as far as we know um, and uh, it, you know, his crimes only be, only came to light, um, you know, 16, 17 years later after he, after he'd, he'd met that that woman. Um, yeah, I mean, you can you, I suppose you could speculate about stability in the relationship and having a child to look after and all those things. Um, but we also know that through the the admitted comments from Edwards' second wife, that there was obviously something else going on in that house because she left and. She said in court that she feared for her life, and we don't know as yet why she made those comments, but there was obviously, again, something 
um, you know, it wasn't all um, hearts and flowers um, behind the door in uh, Acton Avenue, I don't think. Mm. Xanthi, how often would a psychopath um, take a token or um, an item from their victims? I mean, we know that Edwards, uh, you know, was wearing a woman's nightie um, during the Huntingdale attack. Uh, Jane's clothing was never found. Is it common then for them to take something from their victim? It is quite common. They they quite often take mementos, as, as we would class them. Um, and if they don't take something of personal belonging to the victim or something from the victim's room, for example, or the property, they may take photographs. And it's all about reliving that event later on. They need something to kind of stimulate the excitement. So when they're not actually out offending, they can kind of look back at that item and remember. And the ultimate one for doing that, again, is Ivan Malat. Um, but I can think of plenty of other examples where, you know, items have been taken and not recovered. And sometimes the offender hasn't been identified, um, but you, you speculate that, those items have been taken for the purpose of reliving those events later. Yeah, and we know um, obviously the clothing was never found belonging to Jane, but also Sarah has never been found. Brendan, mm-hmm. should by some miracle um, the burial site of, of Sarah be found, what kind of forensic evidence could be extracted from that, if any? Yeah, very little after this amount of time. Um, in fact, we'd be... I don't want to say clutching at straws, but we'd be hard pressed to um, to identify remains after this period of time. Um, it's certainly not impossible, but um, so even from, Sarah's remains would be so hard from to a identify. DNA perspective. Certainly, um, we'd be looking at alternative techniques to to try and identify those. So mitochondrial DNA. Dental's yeah. the other one that's obviously much will be much more intact, I suppose. Um, Further to that, we're really um, kind of looking for things like if there's any surgical interventions, and that's where dent- dental records come into it. But for instance, a broken bone that might have had a surgical implant, all of those surgical implants are, are us- or are marked with serial numbers that can be tracked back to particular um, to particular o- operations. Um, but yeah, dental DNA—that's really probably it. In ter- but that's only really going to identify the actual remains. In terms of something to hint at an offender, um, really, really quite a long shot. Um, any foreign DNA—I mean—is is almost definitely going to be gone. Um, you really. You really would need almost someone's driver's license dropped in, um, which has happened. Well, <laughs> I have heard of situations where people have done covert burials and have left a photo ID by mistake. Yeah, there's, we there's, never said they were clever. There's, right? a, West, there's a West Australian one um, of recent that was uh, similar to that. Um, but yeah, really, really difficult task to identify forensic evidence um, in a in a grave site of this of this kind of age. Yeah. Um, but there's certainly circumstantial s- stuff around that. Like a grave site will identify an area that then, you know, historically we might be able to look back. I, I want to say CCTV, but we're talking so long back that there probably wasn't any. But it, all, it gives you a location, which therefore means you've got, you know, you can start to make estimates about where someone's travelled how they've got their eyewitnesses, all of that sort of stuff that's going to be quite difficult this far down the track, but certainly 
some opportunities. So although this is an open investigation, really they're up against it. I was thinking other information you could build in that though would be the environmental kind of profiling. So how an offender has used space, the types of spaces they've used, you know, the locations relative to each other, and then the body positioning too. I would imagine um, that if any other victims are in existence, they would be in a similar position, you know, the body being laid out similarly in a similar environment to the two known victims. So it would be circumstantial, but it could certainly kind of show elements of linkage between those crimes. Yeah, from the police commissioner to the premier, people have said that if Edwards does know the location of Sarah, that they want him to come forward with that information. And and everyone is saying, well, if he does, would he ever reveal any of those details? Is that ever a likelihood? No, definitely not. No, he's going to take that secret to the grave because this is about power and control for him. And he wants everyone questioning and wondering and he's going to hold on to that secret forever. Yep. So this is way a way that he can continue to keep the attention on himself. Yep. Continue to thrive and get empowerment from his crimes. Yeah. And and would you say that that is just so predictable in terms of a psychopath? <laughs> it certainly is. And there are a number of examples of that as well. Some of them like to show off and share details, um, but most of them want to keep those secrets and they want people to keep asking them. Again, go back to Malat. He's kind of the archetypal narcissistic, psychopathic serial killer, and he was always going to take his secrets to the grave as well. Brendan, I mean, this case was effectively solved after an archived box was pulled out of a shelf, you know, in 2013, and it held a a 20-year-old kimono inside it. Um, How many more answers to unsolved cases are sitting in boxes in forensic headquarters? Oh, that's anyone's guess. Um, (laughs) I'm so glad I wasn't on that. Yeah. I'll dodge that one. Um, but, but realistically speaking, you know, it, it, anything can eventuate from something as simple as a swab that was taken from a house burglary. And, you know, we have to, you, you have to look at things in the, in the, the whole s- scope of policing and forensics and, and um, government policies and, and the whole gamut. Um, when you look at, okay, so if we've got a, a string of ongoing murder investigations going on, should that one swab from a burglary in 1980 really be bumped up in the priority list for sampling over, you know, ongoing murder, serious assaults, domestic violence investigations? Um, and you're, you're completely right. It, it could be the one that solves the unsolved crime of 20, 30 years, um, but... Everything, like we have, it's just like a hospital emergency room, right? We have to triage. So we have to say, okay, well, what is the most likely to assist us or or, or to get us a conviction or or um, or to be able to get us to trial? And is that offence a significant offence? Is it something whereby the offender poses a real risk to society? All of these sort of questions that kind of bump those, you know, that single swab from a home burglary further and further down the triage list. Um, so one day, hopefully, we'll get to everything. <laughs> like, what, It'd be great. I, I love to see the day where every single forensic sample ever taken is tested. Is retested. I know that dozens of rape kits are not tested. I mean, hundreds across the country. So, you know, there's lots and lots of samples sitting around waiting for that day. And the kimono was waiting for three years. I mean, it was that word triage uh, 
Brendan just used. So it, it was pulled in 2013 and then put on a to-do list. Um, but the to-do list was so long that it took them until mm -hmm. 2016 to actually get around um, to testing it. So, which was just, a, you know. You've got to remember as well, DNA testing isn't cheap. Mm. Um, and, you know, all of this analysis is, is done at the taxpayer's expense. So, you know, the taxpayer deserves to ensure that their their money is going towards something that's more worthwhile or as, as worthwhile as possible. Um, so, yeah, there's a, it's a lot more complicated than just being able to test everything, unfortunately. Yeah. And I guess we've seen, you know, what we heard is that we're talking about um, processes and practices we were in this case that were 20 and 25 years old. But moving forward now, um, I mean, where do you see forensic testing and DNA analysis and these sorts of things going in the future and how big a part will they play down the track given how advanced the techniques are getting? It's, it's probably hard to imagine that it's going to play a bigger part than it currently does because DNA particularly ha has a huge um, part of, of every modern investigation. What's going to differ there is that... Um, I suppose we talk about DNA at the moment as matching to a person and being able to uh, identify an individual by you know, a match like a fingerprint would. Um, but the future kind of of DNA testing is is what we call um, intel like intelligence purpose testing, where we might be able to take a DNA sample and interrogate it for information about an individual that doesn't necessarily tell us, and I'm sorry, Tim, but that was Tim Clark, but instead it might tell us information about what we call um, his phenotype or, or his visible extern externally visible characteristics, so eye colour, hair colour. So the, the future forensic reports to police might be something more along the lines of we can't tell you who the individual is, but what we can tell you is that you're looking for someone with green eyes that's of quite solid stature from a particular biogeographic ancestry um, and, you know, has uh, a tendency for such and such type of complexion. So that's probably where it's looking at going. Well, where it's there. I won't lie. It, it's there already. Yeah. Xanthi, I know in um, some cases of multiple murders, often the focus is on the killer. This case has been really different. The the young women, Sarah, Jane, Kira, they've always been at the forefront of people's mind, particularly here in WA. Is that unusual? Well, I think it's something that's probably changing and I'm really pleased about that because one of the things I do with my students at Newcastle University is um, put up the pictures of the seven Belanglo victims, Malats victims, and they never know who they are. Okay, so they never recognise them. And then I put up a picture of Ivan Milat and everyone knows who he is. And that to me is wrong because the victims get homogenised into belonging almost to their offender. Their names aren't known, the stories aren't known, the histories aren't known. They're almost not seen as people anymore. They just become, you know, one of the seven or, or whatever it is. And I think we've seen some pushback on that recently and kind of the importance of naming the victims and remembering them for who they are and recognising the impact on the family rather than heroising the offender. So I think that might be a kind of societal cultural shift that we're seeing. I hope so, um, because I think that's that's how we should be looking at this. We shouldn't be just focusing on the offender. They're, you know, the bad part in this, and it's about remembering their victims. Mm. Yeah, oh, That's a really good point. And the other thing about victimology in this case was that... Uh, having talked to some officers during and then 
since the verdict. Victimology was very important to them at the start of the investigation to get a picture of the the victims or who they feared were victims at the start. And it told them that they this wasn't just a missing persons case, particularly with Sarah. She was a she in inverted commas. She was a good girl. She wouldn't do this. She was she she wasn't one to go off on a whim. And so, <laughs> a missing person case very quickly became a major crime within days. And then the same with Jane. And then the same with Kira. And the victimology reports were built up over years and years and years. And then they put them together or overlapped them. And and obviously the the bodies and and the the wounds and things obviously told them that they thought they were dealing with the same man but even bef- even before Jane's body had been discovered the, the 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 similarities were such from the victims from the picture that the girls were giving the police that they could quite comfortably or, or certainly you know quite f- fearfully say um we think the same man's done this and 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 obviously we know that time is of the essence now that didn't prove to be the case in this in this case but I mean, it's getting that picture so quickly um, Paul Ferguson in, in particular said to me that was really important because we knew how serious this was and so we took everything really seriously really early in, in, including um, getting exhibits and getting um, samples from the girls' clothes and hair and things because we also knew even that early stage that DNA was going to be important and, and he was right there too. That's right and Brendan you know from a, from a forensic and DNA perspective the, the victims are crucial here. Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of um, investigation is always a, is, is always about the victims because that's sometimes all we have. Mm. Um, and this was very much a case of that where we have we have two victims. We've identified sites for two victims, and those sites are really our only source of of, of evidence of forensic evidence. Um, so they're they're the absolute epicenter of the of the forensic investigation. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you so very much for your time. Xanthi Mallet, thank you for your insight into um, this case. And Brendan Chapman, throughout the whole series, thank you so much for providing very great insight to us um, with all the forensic and fibres and DNA. And Tim, of course, thank you for your time. And we will be back tomorrow, won't we, Tim? Um, you're going to be speaking to the victim of the Hollywood attack? Yes, we hope so. Um, spoke to Wendy this morning. Very hopeful that she'll be able to join us tomorrow and tell her very unique story in her own words, which is all that she's ever wanted to do. Yes, and she is a very brave uh, woman. Well, we hope you can join us then for Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict. Chat tomorrow. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.